It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, I'm Scott Soshman. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Get Your Bids In Now sports business podcast, The Sportacast. don't (laughs) you know uh despite a a report earlier today from forbes and you know we're not we're not throwing shade here but forbes says the thing is done rob walton's going to get the broncos at 4.5 billion dollars like well if you asked me to handicap what was going to happen a month ago and i think we sort of did this in many stories rob walton's going to get the denver broncos and i think the price is going to be about 4.5 billion (laughs) dollars that's what we said a month ago and three weeks ago and two weeks ago and a week ago but the idea that it's done and it's him. I mean, it, it it's it's a it's a it's an educated hypothesis guess that is going to wind up being close to right if you you know if if I was speculating. So whatever. But more interesting is like all the machinations here. What's going on? What is the effect in the future? And I think past behavior is the best way to evaluate what's going to happen in the future. There are a lot of correlations to this Denver Broncos sale between what happened with the New York Mets and Steve Cohen. Right. Everybody was wondering. And and by the way, other bidders were told for a long time that Steve Cohen was not bidding on the Mets. He he had a deal in place. It fell apart. And then it was a more open. Steve was so angry that that's it. He's he's not bidding. He's out. He's out. He's out. And some people in the process even wanted, you know, some kind of Steve Cohen protection clause as if they get paid. They get paid back if he jumped in. But that never materialized. So we have the same thing. Same thing here with Rob Walton. I mean, the guy's worth $70 billion. So in the game, it's called dry powder. He's got lots of dry powder, right? He can spend almost anything he wants if he really wants the Denver Broncos. And that's not to say that the guys from Clear Lake and Todd Bowley or Josh Harris or anybody else are not wealthy folks, but they cannot compete. And they know they cannot compete with Rob Walton. So as we record, Edmund, we're a couple of hours away from the deadline for bids, not best and final bids, for bids, why would I never, you know, why would Steve Greenberg and Allen and company say best and final when he always wants to go back and tell somebody, well, do you want to raise your bid, right? Uh, so we're a couple of hours away from second round bids coming in. And disagree with me if if you must, but I think what we're going to see is Rob Walton in the 4.3 to $4.5 billion range and Josh Harris and the others uh, in around the $4 billion range. And let me tell you why. And then you take it from there. Because these are not unsophisticated investors. They understand that if Rob wants it, he's going to get it. This is a trust estate sale. You have to go to the highest bidder for the most part. It must go. And you wrote a story on that, so you can comment more on that. And 
we have a story coming up on the Trailblazers too that also incorporates that, that ideology. So these folks understand well that Rob can bid whatever it takes to get this. Why would they, and this is the mindset I'm hearing, why would they bid it up and be a stalking horse for anything? Because when the Broncos sell, you are going to be establishing, should we use the real estate term? What's the comp, right? What's the closest comp? And that's going to be the most recent sale of a franchise. These folks, if they don't get the Broncos, you can bet Josh Harris and Badad and the other, they're going to look at, well, what's the next team? Maybe it's the Seahawks. Maybe it's something else. But if you establish a price point of $5 billion because you think you're going to play that game here, it's only going to make the next one that much harder. And they understand that very well. I think, Scott, I think that's so interesting because in some ways it makes total sense that obviously Josh Harris, if he wants the Broncos and doesn't get it, there's a good chance he's going to want whatever the next NFL team is that, that comes up for sale. Would you say that the that the the, the last te- NFL team to sell, the, the Carolina Panthers, which sold for $2.3 billion to David Tepper, would you say that that softened the market? Because that was a little bit under what... Uh, under what what the NFL and, and a lot of people expected. I guess I'm just curious if how much the Broncos sale four years down the line affects the sale of insert team that plays 2,000 miles away here. I think it does. I think you're, you're establishing that comp. And what the NFL has seen, and it's also one of the reasons why I don't believe they will anytime soon vote to accept private equity, unlike the other. One, they can do everything in the family. Like I could see Roger Goodell telling everybody in, in the owner's room, listen, if we need to pool capital, we, we got everything we need right here. We can do it in, in the house. You know, we don't need to go outside. That's one. And two, look at the prices. You went from the Buffalo Bills to the Carolina Panthers, now to the Denver Broncos. And of course, it's always going to be determined by how much time goes by. You know, you need the appreciation, the new deals to the media deals, things like I get it. But- and I, I'm going to say about from Bills to Panthers to Broncos, double, double, double. That's what you're looking at. So if you can double the prices that you are getting for these assets and you have enough capital in the room to do it, anything you want, finance anything you want within the group, why in God's name would you open yourself up to investment from private equity? Yeah, I think that's interesting. And 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 to go back to the original point, I, I agree with you. I think the, the conversation around this Broncos sale for the past two or three months has been, is Rob serious? And if Rob's serious, I think we know where this team ends up. The day that we're recording this on Monday, as you said, that the next round bids are due in, in, a, in a couple hours, that's going to answer that question. And you're right. If Rob Walton submits a bid on Monday that is $4.4 billion, I think that is going to be a signal to everybody else in this race that Rob is serious. But if and, I am Rob, let me ask you this, Evan. If yeah. I'm Rob Walton right now, knowing what the others are thinking, which I think he does, uh, why would I even go as high as 4-4 right now? Why not come in at 4-2? Because knowing it's not best and final, if Steve Greenberg and Allen and company comes back to me and says, Rob, you're not quite there yet. Would you like to raise your bid? Okay. <laughs> like, is he bidding against himself right now? Uh, yeah, I think it, you make a very compelling case. If the argument is indeed that a lot of these bidders are feeling like any kind of bidding war with Rob only hurts to is, is both fruitless and potentially hurts them in their pocket, in their wallets down the line. Next time they want to bid on a team, it makes total sense for, for Rob to go a bit lower than he thinks he should. Look, if, I think Rob understands the economics here. He's worth $60 billion. There isn't a current or prospective 
football owner that's worth anything close to that. It's three, four times more than the next richest owner, which is David Tepper, who we mentioned. I think he understands that this is a team that will be his if he wants it or not. I see very little economic uh, interest from Rob for going high at the start unless he wants to send that message. And if he wants to get this done as quickly as possible, I can make an argument for just bid four, 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 five. Now make it clear to the clear Lake capital guys, make it clear to Josh Harris, make it clear to everyone else. I want this team. I'm willing to spend for it and we can wrap this process up very simply. So if Rob's willing to see this out for another month or two, yeah, bid 4.1 and, and, and let it kind of drag its way up. Or if he's not willing to do that, if he really wants to sew this up quickly and easily, I think maybe bidding 4.4 or 4.5 uh, is, is maybe the easiest avenue here. All right, so here we're, let's translate or uh, transition from a team that is for sale and is getting bids, the Broncos, to a team that is not for sale, uh, open parenthesis, yet, close parenthesis, yet, but still receiving bids. Like, you know, big headline the other day, and I thought it very interesting that two media outlets had the headline story at the same time, ESPN and the New York Times saying, oh, guess what? Phil Knight, you know, submits a, was a $2 billion offer to uh, buy the Portland Trailblazers. And it was like right at the same time. I'm like, wow, this had a PR, PR campaign written all over it. Um, we all know that, you know, the Paul Allen Trust, controlled by his sister, will at some point sell the Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks. That's what his wishes were. It just wasn't yet. I get the sense that maybe... Phil Knight, of course, you know, Nike founder with a ton of money, uh, really was getting a little tired of waiting and maybe tried to, you know, goose the process a little bit. So go public with my offer. And by the way, it's right about what Kurt Bodenhausen said the Blazers were worth, right? Right on it. And let me tell you what I know about scarcity value and the NBA in particular, that for years... Years, David Stern made a practice of identifying who's the next owner, who's the next owner. And then as globality hit sports, it was who's the next owner from here, who's the next owner from there. So we, we always said that they were putting them on the runway. You know, like when you're, you're waiting to take off and they say you're number 22 in line, you're like, oh, it's going to take forever. It's the same thing for prospective owners of sports teams, that they are now, they are, they are found, they are vetted, they sometimes take LP stakes in, in other teams as training grounds. And then when a team comes available, you don't want to have to scramble at this point to say, oh, wait, wait we got to sell a team. Who, who do we go to? Who do we? You have already met, screened, vetted uh, a handful of people who are on the runway of owning teams. So this just seemed like Phil Knight maybe trying to get a little ahead of things and goose that process because you know he's not getting any younger. I had someone call me, Scott, right after this news broke uh, and said, you know, Phil already owns a professional basketball team, the Oregon Ducks. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was, uh, which I thought was a funny line. Uh, go- going back to the, the Trailblazers here and Phil, if I was a, a, a rich person and I called you, Scott, and I said, look, Scott, I want to buy this team. What's the best way for me, both media publicly and also privately to go about it? I'm curious what your advice would be, because I agree with you. This feels like the kind of thing that is a, a public pressure in some ways to Jody Allen, to the, the trust of to Paul Allen's trust, saying, look, we know you have to sell the team. We want to front run all of the speculation and all of it and make it clear that we're interested. Phil is obviously a very beloved figure in Portland. We can get into 
and, and NBA expansion slash relocations concerns maybe about that franchise not being in Oregon in a decade or so. But this seems like a fairly savvy and, and honestly a move that I think could also backfire. Scott, we joke a lot about this. Whenever there's a team for sale, I always say that the, the person who is out in the public the most talking most about how they want yep. it is yep. probably the least likely person to end up with this team at the end of the process. I say but, this is an this is an exception to that rule. I agree with okay. you. Mo- most times people are looking for the spotlight or whatever. But I get the sense that, you know, Phil would absolutely love to have the team. He's got the wherewithal to make it happen. The problem is as with the Broncos and the special circumstances and the Blazers that these are trust sales. It's trust and estates. You wrote a story about this. Explain to the folks why you cannot if you're Phil Knight, even if he went about this quietly, and I'm guessing he tried to, and he went to the estate and he said, hey, Jody, you know, I know you're going to have to sell this thing. Uh, I'd love to. I will promise I will keep it in Portland. All the wishes, whatever, all of Paul Allen's wishes. Here's my price, right? The trust, as you well know, and explain the process a little more, has a fiduciary responsibility to maximize the dollar spent. How would you know if you could get more unless there's a public auction for the team? Yeah, you nailed it right there. And, and I liken this to, to how you can't do no-bid contracts in a lot of public companies or public universities. Yeah, you, ha- you have a fiduciary obligation to maximize the value of the asset that's being sold so that when it gets distributed out to the estate, uh, it's done so at the, at the maximum amount. Uh, and as a result, yeah, the, for, for, for the Broncos and for the, the Blazers, when they do sell and, and the Seahawks, because we think that another group that's owned by the Paul Allen Trust that's likely going to have to trade at some point, uh, all of these things are going to have to be done at some kind of auction so that you can satisfy that fiduciary duty. With that in mind, Scott, I imagine Phil Knight knows that. What does he and, and his partner Alan Smolniski, who's a who's an LP in the in the LA Dodgers, what do they get out of being out out front now? The the public pressure, the public preference matters even less in this type of sale, as you just outlined, than it does if Paul Allen were alive and were selling the team personally. I'm just curious about what the what what the front running process does. Uh, I'm going to go a little uh, Alan Greenspan on you, if that's okay, please. Right, but I'm I'm only going to use half of it. So I'm sorry. You know, Greenspan came with the irrational exuberance, right? This would be rational exuberance, but it has created exuberance. And there's a frothiness to it now. And people are talking about the Blazers. And you know how this goes. Your phone goes off. My phone goes off. Is this real? How many times have you heard, insert, you know, the lawyer, banker here, tell you, I've got a buyer? Yep. How many times? All the time. And how many of those, right? Last week, how many times do you think said bankers, said lawyers phone rang from said maybe interested buyer? Yeah. Is this real? Are we in? What's going on? Is this true? All those questions. You know, that that's what it creates. It creates this froth that perhaps could spur some action on the seller side. You know, if all of a sudden... You know, Jody Allen is besieged by inquiries and offers and and starts hearing numbers like three plus billion. And that's where I go to scarcity value and runway. More bidders, more money. If those things start to reach her ears, maybe she says, you know what? All right. You know, it was going to be six months from now. But since we've got all this froth and this exuberance, 
let's do it. Why not put it on the market? That's a real possibility. And so in one of the reasons or one of the ways in which in a non-estate sale, uh, the seller of a franchise might choose someone who's not the highest bidder, one of those really common options is, is, is relocation. If you have a team that is under threat of potentially relocating, very often owners will pick the buyer that gives them the guarantee. Maybe it's written into the contract itself that I am not going to move this team anytime soon. That is a scenario that probably not in play with the Broncos. I can't imagine anyone buying the Broncos. And not going anywhere. Denver. Not going anywhere. Portland Trailblazers may be a little bit different. See, I disagree. Not going anywhere in my mind. Great fan base. Not going anywhere. And especially, you got to have leverage, right? Where? Where are they going? We already know the NBA. You got Seattle, Seattle and Vegas. You got feel Vegas. Very, very yeah, of, ripe. Of for... course, but you're not gonna. What are you? You're gonna charge the trust a, a three billion dollar relocation fee? That that has expansion fee written all over those two markets. So you're not going there. That's your leverage when you're talking about relocation. If you didn't, ha you have a great fan base. I know it's a smaller market, but you've got you have a proven great fan base in Portland. There is no reason why that franchise franchise would move. The, let's just say, hypothetically, a, a group of billionaires in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, put together $4 billion and went to the, when the Blazers do finally have this process and, and went to them and said, here, it's $4 billion. We want to move the team to Kentucky. I think that that, that opens a kind of a fascinating option. And, and we're saying highest qualified bidder for these things because the bidder also has to be approved by the NBA. And if the NBA didn't want the team to move, I imagine oh, they would find a way to, that to would make be sure two, these people were not That would be two NBA teams in a small geographic area. It, it, all I'm saying is that I, I, I think that, yeah, but because of, and you seem less confident. You're certainly more confident than I was, but. No, you didn't recognize my joke there at all. I was trying to give a Kentucky joke. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> a John Calipari. I said, I said that would make two NBA teams in a very small geographic area. Nothing. <laughs> no, I would think the people at University of Louisville would say there's already two, right? <laughs> well, all right, three. That would make three. Sorry, uh, who's the coach at Louisville right now? I almost said Rick Pitino. I have, I have no, no idea. idea. Yeah. So there we go. I, I have no idea who that is. But yeah, I, I mean, I would be surprised. It, it's a it's a good market. There's a there's an established fan base there, uh, especially now. You got a, a local guy with a lot. And what's his net worth, Phil Knight? I haven't looked lately, but it's you know it's up yeah, there. It's in the tens of billions. I would. Yeah, yeah, it, it, more, it's up there. 30, he, 40 billion, I guess. Yeah, he could be one of those where you're like, well, who's going to outbid Phil Knight for this team, right? Because he's bidding now not with just head but with heart, right? This is this is his town, so yeah. he may be the most likely owner of the franchise. We're just saying it can't happen without others being evaluated. That that's what we're saying. Uh, we talked about the NFL in my estimation not taking private equity. You know who is? NBA, everybody else, <laughs> and the NHL and MLS and everybody else. Yeah, but uh, our friends at Arctos Sports Partners—they have struck again. Uh, HBSE, their latest investment. Yeah, the, the interesting valuation here, Scott, which I think is the most interesting thing here. So, so the basic news: Arctos, which, as you said, has invested across all these leagues that will allow it, building a really impressive portfolio of of minority passive stakes in franchises really around the globe. Invested in Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. The, the two main assets there are the 76ers and the Devils. The valuation on the company, Scott, in the deal, we were told, is a little bit over $3 billion. We valued the Sixers at $2.7 billion. We valued the Devils at $750 million. You add those two together, it's almost $3.5 billion right there. We've had conversations on this show about typically when you're buying passive minority stakes, there should be a big discount. 
in valuation. We call it the, the LP discount. It felt like recently we've seen a lot of deals, particularly in sports like MLS, where the LP discount seemed like it had pretty much evaporated, didn't exist anymore. This now feels like a return potentially to that world in which, and it makes sense economically that when you are investing in a team, but have no actual say in the direction of the team, you don't have a board seat. You don't have a path to control that should be a a smaller valuation than if you were buying the whole thing. What do you make of this $3 billion number? All right. That was a nice little 30 second hypothesis you gave us, but I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) From, from what we understand talks on this started in like beginning of, you know, 2021. That's not three months ago. That's not six months ago. You know, you're talking a year plus ago. So if you took the valuation of the Sixers at the start of 2021 and the valuation of the Devils, and I have not looked, so I'm, you know, I didn't flex my inner Kurt Bodenhausen here, but I think, I'm, I think, and I didn't look at last year's. You could you go look it up in like in the next one. You'll tell me if yeah. I'm wrong. That it would bring it much more in line with the three billion, a little bit plus that we're talking about. Not not the three four five three five of today, the twenty twenty two valuation of those two assets. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not. I think it would probably bring it lower. I don't think it would bring the valuation of those two clubs together to be three. I think it would still be higher. Plus, we have the Prudential Center, the arena where the Devils play. There's an esports venture. There's some minor minor league sports. All those things I think come out to to roughly zero when you're talking about numbers this big. Do you think that there is still an LP discount? Then, do you think that? In, in in the modern economy of investing in sports teams and and now that we have groups like Arctos that are investing in literally dozens of them at once, do you, do you think we should now be thinking about the valuation on these clubs when Arctos invests as being a, a real market valuation for, for a controlling stake as well? I think you need to know what else comes with it. You know, what's the relationship between the private equity coming in and the existing ownership? What's the future possibilities? What are the ancillary benefits in terms of synergies? What, what areas of expertise might they be called upon to help with? Um, all those things. I, I still think overall, are we, are, have we seen the last of the LP discount? No. No, you're never going to get the, you know, uh, I, I don't think you're ever going to see it go away. Like if you're buying, you know, one, two, three, four, five percent of a team, it's not going to be based on full valuation. No, you have no board. You have no say. Uh, you want the money. Uh, so you have to sort of make some allowances there. Um, but I still think if, that, if this deal was struck today, if talk started today, it would be way closer to in line with what the valuations are right now. And, you know, sometimes it just takes a while for these things to get papered. And, you know, it takes the the longest sometimes, you know, when you get to the leagues and you got to get approval. And even though these are both known entities, sometimes it just takes a while. It's a, it can be a frustrating process, but sometimes it just takes a while. Elon Musk would have walked away and tried to redo uh, redo the deal under under modern day terms. Bots, bots, fake fans, fake you all. They're all like, you know, COVID, uh, all those, those uh, what, what was it, like WWE had all the uh, holographic fans or whatever, made up people. Not, not, not real. That would have been Elon. He would have added this deal by now. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to our last topic, Scott. The, uh, the, the tectonic plates moving in the world of golf. We touched on it last week. The live golf, the challenger to the established professional golf uh, establishment around the world, kicking off its first event this weekend, Scott, in the UK and a big second name added. We talked about Dustin Johnson. A lot was made about that today. Right before we started recording, they announced that Phil Mickelson, one of the most famous and highest earning golfers on the planet will be joining them for their first event. You and I spoke last week about, about Phil's non-inclusion uh, in the original roster. Phil was, has been tied to this project for a very long time, 
made some comments publicly that angered a lot of people regarding the Saudi Arabian money behind Live Golf, kind of stepped away, was was in the backseat for a while. It appears as though Phil will be the second major name kicking off uh, this first event this weekend. All right. But I mean, I'm more interested in the macro. Yeah, Phil's there to get attention. That's fine. We had Dustin Johnson. The first one got attention. But I'm just more interested in that in the battle, the brewing battle between Liv or or is it just the PGA and everybody else? Like it could be anybody. Again, this is not the first time this has come up. I'm I'm sort of more than surprised that the PGA Tour didn't get out in front of this with its players somehow. I know you've got some thoughts on how they should at least ramp up compensation for the top players. They tried it with this sort of popular thing. You know, the one, again, I'll say the joke that Phil said he won, but he didn't win. Um, that went to Tiger Woods. So social media is a component of it. It's popularity. But again, this goes back to Rupert Murdoch and Greg Norman having a press conference. And back then, I mean, decades and decades ago, to where the PGA Tour just threatened to yank cards and then the players folded you know, quickly. Did they think that, like, I guess you bury your head, do I say the bunker instead of the sand? Just bury your head in the bunker? And, and this would never come up again? Like, you heard rumblings. Like, we knew for a while that talks were going on. More money for less play. And, you, you know, if you can't just stick with the status quo, right? It, you have to listen to the players, get together, be proactive, and say, what could we have done where we would not find ourselves in this situation? And I think that's right. And the the PGA has two main levers to pull here, right? They can make the economics on the PGA Tour better for, for, the, for the, the top-tier golfers. And they can choose to punish the golfers like Dustin and like Phil, who decide to play in, in, in Live Golf. They have done a little bit of the former. They at least have not yet done any of the latter. I think, and I agree with you, Scott, the, the clock is ticking here. The, the PGA, if they are going to do any sort of punishment, try to make it difficult for Phil, for Dustin, for anyone else who decides they, they might want to play in the, these deep-pocketed, really, really wealthy tournaments, the PGA Tour, I think, need, sooner than later has to make it clear where they stand on that. And if that is kicking them off tour, if that is preventing them from playing in majors or 10 events, whatever it is, if there's going to be a punishment, I think they need to make it clear sooner than later that there are going to be people that uh, that are going to suffer that punishment if they do the things that Dustin and Phil are doing. Kevin Na, another golfer, uh, a longtime journeyman on the PGA Tour, he resigned from the PGA Tour this week, Scott. He, he was as part of that the original live golf list. He essentially stepped away from the PGA Tour and said, look, I, if there's going to be punishment, if there's going to be legal action, um, I, I think I'd just rather just get ahead of it in this way and, and, and step away. I don't think the PGA Tour wants that. Either So they're definitely kind of caught in a, in a difficult position here. I'm sure there are going to be lawyers at some point. There's going to be some sort of punishment. It does feel like it has to happen sooner than later. One other thing I'll say on this, because I'm sure the PGA Tour is also going to be watching it. The, the live golf events are just a totally different format than what we're used to on the PGA Tour. It's 54 holes, so it's 18 holes less than a typical event. There's no cut. There's shotgun starts, so it's not like it takes eight hours for the entire field uh, to, to, to finish its events. It's four-man teams that are drafted. So, f- right so far, I like everything you've said as a, as a sort of a casual golf fan. Everything you've said so far, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. So, so in some ways, there, there's also going to be an element here where kind of like what we've seen with leagues like the XFL, it's going to be an upstart league that is trying something new. 
And if it really works, if fans really like it, the, the PGA tour can also think about adopting some of that on its own tour. But, but yes, I think in the, in the background of all this is the fact that live is offering so much more money. I think it's $255 million in prizes for its eight events this year. It's a staggering amount when you think about what the PGA distributes to its golfers and, and more of that money is going to the select few that decide to do it. And, and that is obviously an enticing proposition for, for golfers at the top, top tier right now. So we're waiting on bated breath. I think everybody in golf is, and, and, and there's no easy answer here for the PGA tour, but I do think they have to come up with something. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I'm Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. I don't think we need any sound effects in this one. I didn't go any tangent buzzers, nothing. All right, Matt, but thanks for your hard work. Our digital media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.